0: It's been a while since I've uh, been in the pulpit, in the music stand, I guess I should say. Um, it's been a while, and so I'm glad to be back. I'm excited to preach. We're in this series on Titus, uh, and and uh, I know that Jeff and Nick did a great job launching us into this series over the last two weeks. And so we're going to pick up here in verse 10 of Titus chapter 1. I try to be a budget-conscious family, like my family does. We... Uh, we Work really hard at that, and uh, so consequently, at the end of the month, when you 're living on a budget you usually there's not a lot of money and so as you may have noticed, I tend to really enjoy my come and go drink eighty four cents after tax at come and go. Uh, I kind of have probably gotten into I, we'll just call it a habit. Some people might call it a caffeine addiction. I don't know what you want to say, but I'm I sort of finding myself really wanting one of these every morning. But when it's at the end of the month and you're on a budget and you don't have any money left in the budget to the first of the month, I tend to find myself scrounging for change in the morning. If you've ever had this experience, you know what I'm talking about. I'm going through ashtrays in the car. I'm, we have a little secret compartment in the stroller. Clarissa hides money in certain places around the house that uh, she doesn't think I know about, but I do. And so uh, I'm looking for 84 cents. All I need is 84 cents. And, and so I've been in come and go, and I've gone in there one time, I've gone in there with 80 cents. That's all i could come up with and uh and i'm i know you think it's probably weird but i worry about stuff like this i worry about a lot of stuff it's not good and uh and so i go in i'm thinking maybe in that little take a penny leave a penny thing that i can find 4 cents and i'm just hoping and so on the way in i happen to pull out my wallet and in between in the side stuff between two frequent reward cards things, you know, is a $10 bill. <laughs> oh! It's like Christmas, you know. Now, all of a sudden what I had which wasn't sufficient is not only sufficient, it's overly and abundantly sufficient. I even have enough money for lunch at Jimmy John's, which is really bad cuz it's right next to the church office, you know? But it's overflowing and abundantly sufficient. You know, we live in a godless world, but today I want you to know in no uncertain terms that Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient for you in a godless world. He is sufficient for you in every way, shape, or form, and He is overly and abundantly sufficient for you. Did you notice the songs that Jay picked? I don't know if you were paying attention but every song focused on the sufficiency of Christ. He's our rock. He is the one. Everything points towards Jesus. You know, we're in this series, In a Godless World, and it's right out of the book of Titus. Titus uh, is, was basically the apostle or pastor sent to Crete to straighten out a mess that was on the island of Crete. The church on Crete had some things that weren't going well, and Paul had planted that church, and now he's sending Titus, his right-hand, one of his right-hand men, to, to go and straighten out a mess that was there. Crete was a vile place. As uh, both Nick and Jeff pointed out, Paul says that Cretans were always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> Their own prophets said this. I mean, talk about racial profiling, Right? Uh, you know, their own prophet said it about them, those poor Cretans. In a godless world, the Christians on the island of Crete were trying to figure out how to live for Christ. It was a struggle. Friends, the world around us is a mess. And more and more, it's distancing itself from any appearance of the gospel as the Chick-fil-A mess has just pointed out. You know, anymore, it's distancing itself. And it's hard to live like a Christian in a world that gives us every, every other message. And if you are discouraged by the movement in our culture, if you wonder, sometimes you just sit there and wonder, what will my kids' lives in this country look like in 30 years? If you're wondering how on earth you can make it for Christ in this world, Paul has an encouragement, encouraging word for you. Paul wants you to know that Christ is able and sufficient to handle it all. So today I, I have four things I want to talk about. The first one is basically a long introduction, but I need to try to set up the, the tone for what the application of what we're going to say looks like for us. And so I'm actually talking about application first, and then we're going to work backwards and dig into the text. But the first thing you need to know is what I've already said. The first thing you need to know is that Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Paul's theme in verses 10 to 6 is the sufficiency of Christ. Crete was a world, an island, that was decidedly anti-Christian. It wasn't conducive for living out this gospel of Jesus. And last week, Nick did a great job in preaching uh, from Titus, and, and he talked about godly leaders. And the last point Nick made was that godly leaders protect the sheep. Because there were people who were saying Christ isn't sufficient. There were people saying, in the church note less, Christ isn't sufficient. You need more than he can give. The sufficiency of Christ is one of those big blocks of the Christian faith. It's one of the major beliefs. Christ is what we need. And at Waukee Community Church, we try to focus on the sufficiency of Christ and not get sidetracked from his sufficiency. One of the things I love about the Evangelical Free Church of America, it's the denomination or association in which we belong, I love that the Evangelical Free Church majors on the majors. I really appreciate that. We have a wide range of beliefs of people here at Waukee Community Church, and I kind of like that. I like the fact that we have differing beliefs, and we get together and we say, we try to say, listen, let's major on the majors, let's discuss in a healthy way what's outside of the majors, let's know what we believe on those things, but we agree to come together. I was thinking about the Mississippi River. Um, When I was a kid, uh, for a few summers, uh, I had the privilege of hanging out at a cabin on the Mississippi River, and uh, my grandma married a guy after her husband died, and he had a cabin. So there's like two summers, we'd go down there, and he had a boat, and we'd go out in the Mississippi River. We'd drive around uh, outside of the Mississippi River. We'd see the barges and watch them go through the different lock system on the Mississippi. It's cool. I learned how to fish. I learned how to water ski on the Mississippi. Um, The Mississippi is a big river, if you didn't notice this. (laughs) And the interesting thing about the Mississippi River is, you know, there's different the the river is vast and wide and crazy, but generally speaking, the Mississippi River, in the middle of the river is a a swath of current that goes down the middle. And on the sides, we have the eddies and pools where uh, any river, really, any river pools up in the edges. There's weeds, there's things. And if you want to be flowing down the river, you stay in the middle of the river. The center of the river is where the barges move, the weeds on the side of the river are where the waters swirl. You notice the barges try to stay out of the weeds. And then there's the sand on the side and the roads that go along the side of the river. I think a river is a great example of, of doctrine and how we approach this at Waukee Community Church. Because we start with the sufficiency of Christ. We start with the atoning death of Jesus for our sins. His deity, his resurrection. We talk about the importance of faith in him and, when we're, and, and the importance of living out this mission of being disciples. And when we're on mission, when we get the doctrine, we're in the center of the river, we're cruising down the river. But there's sort of these eddies and pools on the side of the river. You know, there are things that are, it's good to know about. But you don't want to get stuck there, like eschatology. I mean, you, got, you should know what you believe is going to happen in the future. But, you know, as far as when the rapture happens, and you know, is it before, middle, kind of middle, kind of more to the end than middle or at the end? You know, stuff like that you should know, but you don't want to get stuck there. You want to, you want to be flowing down the middle of the river. And, uh, and there are many times where people start talking about stuff like numerology, and you go, you know, that's adding up all the numbers in the Bible, and you go, okay, that's nice, but you're somewhere in the weeds on that. Stay in the middle. Let's go. Know, know what's there. Stay in the middle. A, a, a director of a barge on a river, uh, those, those captains of those barges that have, have over and over... Uh, push those barges up the river and then back down. They know the river. They know it well. They know where to be. Our culture set wants to say, if there's three aspects of the river of theology, we say the center is the essentials. The edges are the weeds where you should know what's going on there, but don't get stuck there. And then there's the shore and the sand and the river where you're not even in the river, you know, Our culture would want to say it doesn't matter. Pick the widest path. It's all good whether you're in, you know, if you're supposed to be flowing down the Mississippi, it doesn't matter if you're in Kansas or Colorado. It doesn't matter. It's all good. You believe whatever you want. That's what our culture says. And many Christians kind of believe this. They're like, well, I believe in Jesus, but it's okay. You believe whatever you want. We'll be in a wide thing together, you know? You, and uh, it's just not true. Like as Christians, we have to stand and say, no, the middle of the river is important. The essentials of our faith are absolutely, they're essential. That's why we call them essentials. Many Christians then also say, well, I'm in the river, but they're stuck in the weeds. They're obsessed with one area of theology or the opposite. They don't think it's even important to be in the center. You know, whatever, we'll just hang out, and I don't even want to know anything about theology. You know, just kind of wishful thinking stuff. Jesus is the center, friends. It's all about him, all the time, he is sufficient. So at Waukee Community Church, we would argue for the essence of belief, the essentials. Christostom said, John Christostom was a church father. Do I have that quote here? Maybe, maybe not. Christostom said this, he said, in essentials, unity In non essentials, charity, and in all things, Jesus Christ. There's been some debate whether he actually said that or not, and a lot of people have misused that quote to say a lot of things that they want to say, but what I want to say is be in the middle of the river. Be in the middle of the river where the focus is on Jesus and the mission that Christ gave us of making disciples. Be in the middle of the river. Focus on Christ. I need to do a little history lesson with you for a second. If you hate history, I'm sorry, hang in there. It's important. If you like history, you'll enjoy this. In the early 1900s, there was a rise of something in the church called liberalism. Liberalism basically said, hey, we're smart now. We've all been enlightened. We know that this Bible couldn't possibly be true because we're smart enough to figure that out. So this was really just a collection of nice stories that have obviously developed over a couple thousand years, and, and and so we don't actually believe any of this is true, but we want to still call ourselves Christians, so we'll just kind of go with the moral route. Like, this has a nice, a lot of moral things to teach us, and we'll try to live nice, and we'll boil the essence of the gospel down to living nice. And that's what Harry Emerson Fosdick and some of these guys, uh, kind of started to steer the ship of Christianity towards this direction. And there were a lot of people that said, uh-uh, no, this word of God is important. And so they got, they called themselves fundamentalists. They said, there are, it's, it's great to talk about this wide scope of theology, but there are some essentials and we cannot lose essentials or we're out of the river altogether. And so the the fundamentalists defined this narrow stream in the middle. They said these are the fundamentals of the faith. They talked about the inspiration of Scripture, that these are God's words and they're inerrant. He talked about the virgin birth of Jesus. He really was God in human form. That's an essential of the faith. They talked about the death of Christ, that that atones for our sins. That we, through the blood of Christ, we are reconciled to the Father. They talked about the resurrection, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And when they talked about that miracles really do happen. And that was fundamentalism. They focused on the essence of the gospel. Sinners, the incarnation, sacrifice, resurrection, faith. Now we're part of God's kingdom, living towards his ends, for his purpose. And the center of the river then is Jesus. Christ is enough We live like we're on mission all the time. And this is what the fundamentalists in the early 1900s tried to say. They tried to stand up to these liberals and say, no, you're losing the gospel. Don't lose the gospel. Don't do it. Loving discussion is always great, but we always come back to scripture, what the word of God says. And there are some things about which we do not waver. The reformers 400 years earlier Called it the solas. Sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura, sola Christas. Th- those last two, sola scriptura, that meant, hey, whatever we do only through the Bible, this is the guide for faith in life. This is important. And they said, sola Christos, only Jesus. Christ is sufficient for forgiveness. He's sufficient for life and godliness, and He's sufficient to meet my needs. I told you this was a really long introduction to get to the text, (laughs) and it is. Christ is sufficient. My second point Christ is sufficient, but Christ alone is sufficient. Christ alone is sufficient. Now we're going to get to the text. Paul has just told Titus, listen, leaders are important. We must preserve the church by encouraging others by sound doctrine and refuting those who oppose it. That was verse 9. Now, he's going to get more specific. He says, here's the people that oppose sound doctrine. Here's what they're like. He says, there are many rebellious people. Rebellious people. They've got lots of talk, They says. Many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. They've got, just got talk. They've got lots of untruth. You know, here's the interesting thing. If you say a lie enough to yourself, you'll start to believe it. It's true. You just repeat a lie to yourself enough often, have conversations with other people about untruth, and you will start to think that the lie is truth. That's what these people are. They're mere talkers and deceivers, especially or specifically those of the circumcision group. I'll get to that in a minute. These people, it says, were, they were ruining whole households. They were doing it for wealth and position. These are people in the church that were teaching bad doctrine. They had taken the essentials of the faith down the middle of the river and they changed them. What were they teaching? Well, from other letters in the New Testament, we get the idea that these were Judaizers and they were teaching one must become a Jew before he or she can become a Christian. One must be circumcised and then obey the law. Then you can be forgiven. So remember, the early church started, Jesus ministered to Jews Jesus ministered in this Jewish kingdom and Jesus brought the gospel, the good news to the Jews first, who generally speaking rejected it. And then we discovered that the gospel really wasn't just for the Jews at all, it's for the whole world. And so, but there's this decidedly Jewish element in the early church. It's a Jewish flavor because of all this. And there was a group of Jews in the church who they weren't ready to just let go of their Jewishness. And so I kind of imagine it happened like this, you know? That. The Jews said, I want to believe in Jesus. And they started in the essentials of the faith or what at least they thought. And then they said, but I don't really want to lose my Jewish culture. So I'd like to do all the rituals and and observe the days and and eat the the right food and do all these things. And then all of a sudden, and and I'd still like to retain circumcision because I don't really want to lose my Jewishness. And then all of a sudden it was, oh, by the way, we're actually the real Christians. If any of you Gentiles want to join, you have to become a Jew first. You have to become a Jew first. And before they knew it, these guys were on the shore. They were saying, Jesus isn't enough. You've got to add more. You've heard of Google Plus, right? Gospel Plus. There you go. Gospel Plus. That's what this is. It's the gospel plus. Christ is not enough. You need Jesus plus something. Paul says, don't do it. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. There's a danger of the gospel plus. The gospel plus says Christ isn't enough. It says that you could do something to earn God's favor. These are contradictory to the free gospel, that salvation's a gift. It's a gift we can't earn. It comes through faith. My question is, we don't have a lot of Judaizers in here that I know of. <laughs> you know? I don't, we don't have a lot of us saying we've got to become Jewish before we become Christian. I think we're pretty much Gentiles around here. And, and so we don't have a lot of Judaizers. How are we tempted to do gospel plus? How are we tempted to add things so that we say Christ isn't enough, we need to add to that? Well, we take things from the, the wide, weedy parts of the river and we try to scoot them to the middle. That's what happens. That's how we do Gospel Plus. You know, it's very interesting. Many Christians today uh, have no idea what evangelical means. We're an evangelical free church. We are evangelicals. Because in the 80s or 70s, the word evangelical got turned into a voting block. But if you look at evangelicalism, it's a branch off of fundamentalism I talked before. In the, in the early 50s, the fundamentalists who had started in the center of the river and said, we want to major on these major things and stay in the center of the river, the fundamentalists started to get in the weeds. They started to say things like, uh, we would like to uh, now not actually interact with anyone who doesn't think like us. And we, we have some rules that we'd kind of like to add to this deal. And all of a sudden, and so evangelicals said, we got to get back again to the gospel, evangelical comes from the Greek, euangelion, which is the word for gospel. That's all it means is gospel. Evangelical is gospel-centered. Gospel is good news, the good news that Jesus came. And so the evangelical said, hey, here's the idea. We're going to focus on the gospel in such a way that we can actually reach people who don't believe with this good news. That's what the word evangelical meant. They were going to engage culture with the gospel, Do you realize how far the word evangelical has come from that now? I want my word back. Evangelical is a voting block word. It talks about people who all think the same way about politics. Many of us think evangelical and Republican are synonymous. And all of a sudden we've confused this. We're starting to do the same thing. We're taking issues in the weeds and trying to pull them into the center. We're saying, well, if you have a Christian, how could you vote Democrat? You must have to, you have to be a Republican. All of a sudden we're saying, and on this issue, and that issue, and and we're just listening to the world and saying, hey, we'd like to define what evangelical means. And we're going, hey, that sounds good to us. We like your definition. I want my word back. We confuse politics with our faith. Friends, the goal of Christian faith is not to legislate moral behavior. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We're adding something to the gospel. And it's not that you shouldn't vote a certain way. It's not that you shouldn't be part of a political party. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying don't take it from a side issue and bring it into the mainstream of what it means to follow Jesus. There are convictions and God should lead you to vote your conscience. Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. When we lose the belief that the gospel can actually change our culture, we resort to letting politicians try to do it for us. We resort to having laws passed because we don't actually believe Jesus can change our culture. These are distortions of evangelicalism. We just widen the stream. Gospel plus, and it's not every evangelical, and it's not everyone in this room, but it's a a temptation there's another way we do gospel plus sometimes. There's a whole movement of people that have determined that <clears throat> it's the gospel plus money or health or position. A friend of mine's a nurse. She had a patient in, in this patient's room in ICU. The mother came in and put up these little papers all over the room The papers were, uh, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and gosh darn it, people like me kind of papers, you know? They're the kind of things, they're little sayings to help you make sure that, you know, you too can have all this stuff. The statements were all about God's favor. I wrote some of them down. Here's one of them. Because I am a tithe payer, the favor of God is open to me. Because I am a tithe payer, it makes me rich I have better judgments. People treat me preferentially. Do you get this? I mean, it's just wrong. Jesus now isn't enough. It's Jesus plus money. Jesus plus success. It's widening the stream. You have to have God's blessings all of a sudden. Wait, I thought the gospel was about the reconciliation of God and people. But it's just so tempting to add extra stuff. There's another way we do it, and this one might... Hit closer to home. It does for me anyway. We actually, this is gospel minus. We tend to make Jesus a supplement. Not only do we try to add Jesus, sometimes we just minimize him to our lives. We change the essence of the gospel. We say, Jesus, he's a supplement. Um, I, I went into a supplement store. Did you know in this country, $22 billion in vitamin supplements are sold each year? 52% of adult Americans surveyed in in, uh, 2006, so it's a little old, said that they regularly use supplements. Well, okay, fine, nothing wrong with supplements. My vitamin D is low because it's February and I haven't got any sun. I need a supplement to boost my life. Will I die if I don't get the supplement? No, but it'll make me feel better. That's how many people view Jesus. You can survive without him, but sometimes you just need him. Sometimes you just need to kind of a little Jesus boost. And so we tend to treat Jesus this way. Our spirituality is low, so we boost up. I go to church, read my Bible a little more. Jesus is a supplement. Gospel plus, gospel minus, whatever it is. Friends, Christ is. Is sufficient. These Judaizers wanted to change that, change the gospel, but Christ alone is sufficient. Watch what he does, all right? Paul's, sometimes he has no tact. He says, I mean, verse 11, what does he say these people we should do with them? They must be silenced. Look at verse uh, 13. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them. Well, those are not nice. Paul was a very, not a very nice person. I mean, silence and rebuke, those are really strong words. Why would he do that? Because the church is important. If the church were just a club, it wouldn't matter. We can just leave people in the weeds or on the side of the road. Who cares? Join the club, don't join the club. We don't care. But the church is the hope of the world. It's not a supplement for life. Jesus isn't a supplement for life. If it's just a supplement, what do you care what someone else thinks? What do you care if they're way out there in Colorado and they're supposed to be on the Mississippi? Who gives a rip? Just a supplement. The message of the gospel is worth making people uncomfortable. This fall, the church, it's so important that we are going to spend several months in a series called This is Church. Because as the church, we need to understand who we are, that we're the bride of Christ, that we're called to something, what we're doing here. I'm super excited about the series. It's going to be a blast. It's going to help us focus right on the center of this river and say, what's the mission that we're called to? What are we doing and why is it important that we do this together? It's going to be a hoot and a blast. So the, the message of the gospel is worth making people uncomfortable. Don't distort the greatest message ever by saying it's not enough. There is a place in the church for rebuking one another. We ought to if we love each other. Christ alone is sufficient, not gospel plus. The third thing I want to tell you today is that Christ is sufficient for purity. So after Paul gets talking about these Judaizers, we come to uh, verse 15. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. So when I first read that verse, it's really tempting to try to make this sermon all about purity. It's really tempting. Uh, You know, let's face it, who doesn't struggle with purity? Living pure in an impure world is tough. I thought this kind of would be maybe like a kind of a how-to sermon, how to live pure, in an impure world, and and, and I thought it would kind of go that route, you know, try harder, accountability, the community of Christ. Here's a great encouragement for you today. If you have faith in Christ, you are already pure. You are already pure. What Paul's actually doing here is he's arguing the opposite of what I thought originally this sermon would be about. He's not saying, well, if you're pure, try harder, be more pure. He's flipping it on its head. Think about it. These Judaizers, they had purification rituals down. They knew how to wash their hands just right. They knew how to to eat the right animals so they would stay pure. This word pure is a purification word. It's a ritual word. It's a very Jewish word. And he's saying, listen to me. You want to say you got to do all these Jewish rituals and then you can come to Jesus. And he's saying, no. No. To the really pure ones, the ones who through faith in Jesus have believed and been reconciled and have had his blood poured over their sin, to the pure, everything is pure. It doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter if you do the rituals. To the pure, everything is pure. It's to the unpure, the ones that think gospel plus works, they're the ones that are really impure. Paul flips it on his head. He says, no, the real pure ones are not made pure by the things they do to add to the gospel. They are made pure by Christ alone. Christians are pure in Christ. And when we believe in Jesus, the blood is poured over the sins of our life. When we believe in faith in Jesus, his blood covers our sin. His blood works like a cleansing agent. It pours over us. It covers every nook and cranny. It weeds out the sin and it covers it and it's forgiven and it purifies us. The blood of Christ is the best best oxyclean in the world. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us pure. When we believe in Jesus, we find this purity. Christ is sufficient for purity. And I want you to know that today and walk away here encouraged by this. And then it leads right to our last point. Christ is sufficient to handle guilt. Because someone might say, well, what happens when I as a believer sin? Because I sure don't feel pure then. And there are many Christians that struggle with feelings of guilt. Sin is a stronghold in our lives, and we, we don't know how to get out of it. We know that we're forgiven, but there's this ongoing feeling of dirtiness, not purity. Friends, Jesus makes even the vilest sinner pure. And when we start from a place of purity, we know that he's handled our guilt. Wallowing in the guilt of our sin doesn't help Anything, because you're pure in Christ. You are forgiven. First John one nine. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. He's dealt with guilt, and He is sufficient. You don't have to go to another person to find forgiveness. Although that's good, James tells us that's really great. You can go right, to, right through Jesus to the Father and find forgiveness. Jesus is sufficient. It's all about Jesus, about what brings him glory. Jesus is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. And he's sufficient enough to help us when false teachers and when our own ideas, we tend to get off in the weeds and somewhere else to bring us back to the truth and the essential of the gospel. He's sufficient. MacArthur John MacArthur, some of you hate him, some of you like him, whatever. He's got a good story. I want to share it. Um, At one point, he was invited in in Hollywood (laughs) to speak to uh, just a whole group of of people who were non-believers. And so, you know, I appreciate it. He took that opportunity for 45 minutes. He just shared the gospel with a whole bunch of non-believers. And he didn't know what the fruit of it would be, but he just shared this good news. You don't believe in Jesus, but guess what? Jesus came so you could be forgiven. And, he, and MacArthur says, immediately after he was done, a young man came up to him. He, this young man was from India, and he was a Muslim from India. And he came up to him, and he said, I want Jesus Christ in my life. MacArthur said, well, let's go over, come over to the side here. And, and he did, and he said, the, the man said to him, I want to tell you, I'm a Muslim. I've been a Muslim all my life, but... I want to have Christ. And so MacArthur was thrilled by this. Like, this is a great opportunity. He said uh, he had never had the privilege before this point of leading a Muslim, of being part of that, of leading them to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so he was really excited. And they went and he explained the whole gospel again. And he talked about opening up your life for Jesus and and, uh, opening up for his forgiveness, this purity to flow over him and, and find Christ. And so he prayed with the man, and, uh, and this man prayed, and he was so thrilled, and the man got up so happy. He had this glow on his face, and he said to MacArthur, he said, now, isn't that wonderful? Now I have two gods, Jesus and Muhammad. The Gospel Plus. MacArthur had this great opportunity to explain to him that Jesus wants your whole life because Jesus alone is sufficient. Friends, in many ways, many of us are practically speaking like that Muslim man. We like Jesus, but we've been adding all these other things, and we don't even know it. Sometimes we don't even realize it. MacArthur explains to that man, What I want to tell you today is that Jesus alone is sufficient for you. And when we rely on the sufficiency of Jesus, we don't add to the gospel. We don't try to earn God's favor. We don't minimize the gospel by by making Jesus a supplement. The center of the river is the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. And that's what keeps us moving. As we close, my prayer for you is... May you take comfort in the completeness of Christ's sacrifice for you. May you make Jesus the main course, not a supplement. May you be confident that his blood has made you pure. And may you live in the middle of the river on mission for Christ. Heavenly Father, it is with great, great joy that we bask and rest in the sufficiency of Jesus. Every problem that we face, Jesus, you're able to handle. The turmoil in my heart, the turmoil in others' lives, in our hearts, Jesus, you are sufficient. And so we turn to you gladly. We don't add to you. We don't minimize you. We ask that you would help keep us on mission for Christ, not off in the weeds. We pray this all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.